0: Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 8, even though I'm only going to be preaching on the last few verses on the handout, verses 23 to 25. I'm going to do what I've done the last three times and read the whole paragraph, starting in verse 18. So listen carefully to God's inspired word. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the eager expectation of the creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to corruption and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together in birth pains right up to the present. And not only the creation, but even we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we ourselves also groan within ourselves, waiting expectantly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait expectantly for it with patience. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the hearing and reading and preaching of his word. We need your help, God, to believe what you say and then to do what you say and our desire is that we would not only be hearers of your word but that we would by your grace by your spirit go from here as doers of what you say and so work in us the grace that we need to be obedient sons of God. We ask for this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I don't regularly say this, but I did say it last week, and I'm going to say it this week, that as you can tell from your handout, that this is part three, and uh, in a in a way, that's not always the case. This sermon and the previous two sort of hang together. I, I always preach sermons that can stand alone as well. So if you missed one or both of the other two, this sermon's going to make sense, I trust. That's the goal anyway. But, uh, but in, a, in another sense, they also kind of hang together and complement one another. Uh, the, the last three sermons, including today's, are on this paragraph that I just read which is a unit. And last in, in those sermons, you can listen, I, I think they're all online. All the sermons from Romans, I, I believe, are online. Last, last week's text was about creation's groaning. We, we could even say creation's dilemma. Paul said in verses 20 to 22 that God's creation groans in futility and it groans for freedom. It's groaning, but it's headed toward glory. It's groaning for or toward glory. And now in verse 23, Paul articulates the Christian's dilemma, if you will. And not only the creation, he says in verse 23, but even we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we ourselves also groan within ourselves. Waiting expectantly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Even we ourselves, Paul says. Who, 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 is the, who, who are those people that he's talking about? We ourselves. It's we who no longer are in Adam, but, in, but we're in Christ. We who no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We in whom the future new creation has already begun. Even we, Paul says, continue to groan within ourselves as we wait expectantly for our future adoption, our future redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. So that's the Christian dilemma. Believers, maybe a better way of talking about it, say we're caught in a tension. We're, uh, we're, We're caught in tension between what God has already begun in us when he gave us his spirit and gave us a new spirit, the new birth, and what he will one day finish in us when he adopts us and redeems us on the last day. I know you're thinking, wait, we've already been adopted, we've already been redeemed. We're going to get to that in a minute. We as God's children live in this tension. Or as John Stott put it, Our half-saved condition causes us to groan with discomfort and longing. The indwelling spirit gives you joy, gives us joy, the people of God joy, and the coming glory gives us hope. But that interim suspense gives us pain. In our passage, Paul is addressing a problem that arises naturally in a section about Christian assurance. And remember, that's one of the main themes in all of chapter 8, Christian assurance. In, In Romans 8, Paul's main pastoral goal, maybe even, we could say, is to assure true believers that they belong to Christ, that the Father loves them in Christ, that Christ has saved them truly by his blood. And one of the stumbling blocks That causes us to wonder if that's really true, if God really loves us, is the suffering we endure. It raises questions in our minds sometimes, or maybe the suffering of other people that we love or know, or just the suffering of humanity in general. But it becomes personal when it's happening to us. We might naturally think, like Job and his friends ended up thinking, that the absence of suffering rather than the presence of suffering is evidence of God's favor toward us. Job knew he was righteous, his friends didn't know that he was righteous, they were accusing him, but one of the things they had in common was a misconception of God and how he works and why we suffer and what it means about God's favor toward us or love toward us or what he thinks about us he was he was as confused as they were about what was going on because he knew he was righteous maybe we think like the characters in Job we think that the absence of suffering would really show us if God if God loved us wouldn't he he has the ability why wouldn't he keep us from suffering When our circumstances become difficult and painful, we're tempted to doubt God's love and favor. We begin to question whether it will all really turn out for our good, as Paul promises later in this chapter. And so this this struggle, which is common to all men, is why Paul, one reason at least, why Paul launches into this section about our present groanings. And what's really helpful about this is that the present groanings he's talking about are broad. Oftentimes when he's talking about afflictions and suffering, he's talking about persecution for the faith. And he certainly endured that in a way that we, most of us, probably never will, haven't, and and likely never will, though we may. But here, here it's a broad application of our present groanings that he's talking about. Paul's point is that our sufferings and creation's sufferings are the sufferings of childbirth, which means they're proof that the birth of the new age, the new creation, including our new bodies, is coming. That birth is coming. Although we groan intensely, we don't groan hopelessly. We're groaning towards something. Our groaning is headed somewhere. There's a story that God is telling And our groaning is a part of that story. By the grace of God and by the power of His Spirit who lives in us, our our groanings intensify our hope. And after our groanings intensify our hope, our hope then enables us to wait for our coming glory. And it enables us to wait for it both expectantly, eagerly, And patiently, with steadfast endurance. Paul does two things in today's text that are important. On the one hand, he highlights the different aspects of our half-saved condition in this world. Uh, I I may not be able to get away with saying something like that, that we're half-saved, but surely John Stott can. I think we know what he means there. So... Paul is is highlighting the different dimensions or aspects of our half-saved condition in this world. On the other hand, he gives substance to our Christian hope by fleshing out for us the main features of our future world. The world that we're waiting for expectantly and with steadfast endurance or patience. So let's consider in verses 23 to 25 how we... The children of God are groaning inwardly, groaning for resurrection, and groaning, hopefully, in this life. And there's actually a fourth point that's not on your outline, a surprise point that I'll mention at the end. I, uh, I just ended up adding it uh, yesterday after I'd sent out the, the outline. I thought i need to add one more point so that I'll keep you on the edge of your seats. First, we're groaning inwardly. More precisely, Paul says that we're groaning within ourselves. That's a, that's a very literal translation of that that I think actually uh, is more vivid. In verse 23, not everyone groans inwardly. Not everyone gro- groans within themselves like this. Only believers do because only believers have the spirit inside of them. In in next week's passage, or I should say in two weeks, uh, when I preach again on Romans, we'll learn that the Holy Spirit is a groaning spirit. He's groaning inside of us. And he enables us to groan with him, alongside him. And you'll notice in verse 23 that Paul puts the spirits indwelling and our groaning Side by side. He says, we who have the spirit are the ones who groan within ourselves. So that indwelling spirit, that those who have the indwelling spirit are the ones who groan inwardly inside. And you only groan inwardly if the spirit lives in you. So on the human level then we can say, so in, in Romans 8 there are three, uh, there, there's three mentions of groaning. God groans, the spirit groans, creation groans. And then humans groan. But on the human level, the groaning is unique to believers. It's the privilege of God's people to groan. Unbelievers suffer, but they don't groan because they don't have God's groaning spirit in them. To groan is to suffer by faith. To groan is to suffer with and in Christ. To groan is to have fellowship with the Spirit who intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, as Paul says a few verses down. To groan is to suffer uh, with Christ-like endurance and steadfastness. To groan is to endure trials that conform you into the likeness of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered more than any human can, even in eternity. Groaning is an honor. Not everyone gets to participate in it. Only God's sons get to groan. What are some particular ways that you groan? Some of you struggle with physical ailments regularly, even daily, even constantly. Some of you, even now, are groaning your way through a series of life setbacks. All of us groan because of the indwelling sin in us. Some of you are groaning because of others' sins or others' foolishness, at least. If so, rejoice with Christ. Rejoice that he has counted you worthy to suffer in a way that somewhat resembles the suffering that he endured for you and for others. There's a wonderful scene at the end of Acts 5 where the disciples are standing before the Jewish leaders who are very upset with what they're doing because their message is going all over Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. And so they decide, they really want to to do a lot more than they end up doing, but one among them convinces them just to let it play out. Let's see what happens. If it's not of God, it's not going to work out. And so they decide to just beat the disciples just beat the disciples and send them on their way instead of doing more. Uh, and And after this, the disciples rejoice. It says, and after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Acts 5.41, the next verse. Then they, the apostles, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame on behalf of the name. Now, most of us have never gone through the kind of persecution that they endured for the Christian faith. But all of us endure daily, to use Paul's language, the futility, bondage, corruption, groaning, pain and afflictions or sufferings of life on this side of glory. And so every day we have a choice about how to respond. We can rejoice like the disciples did, or we can complain. We can despair. Every day God gives you opportunities to suffer well, to suffer with courage and contentment. To suffer unlike the world suffers. That's what groaning is. It's suffering unlike the world suffers. To suffer like Christ. To suffer in the spirit. What are you doing with your opportunities? What are we doing with our opportunities? The most important things about your life aren't the things happening outside of your heart. Your bank account, your reputation, your health, your, your treatment by others your success, your productivity. The most important things about you, the things that will matter in eternity, for all eternity, have to do with how you, how your heart responds minute by minute to the constant stream of futility and frustrations, the disappointments and discouragements that often fill your days. Every trying moment. Every interaction with a stubborn child, every setback at work, every broken relationship in your friend sphere or in your family or extended family, every pain in your body, every ache in your soul, every regret, every inconsiderate word from your husband or every disrespectful word from your wife, every exasperating word from your father— Every mistreatment by a friend or family member, every temptation, every battle with sin, every instance of suffering is an opportunity for you to groan in step with the Spirit who is groaning in you and for you and alongside you. Paul says in verse 23 that Christians have the Spirit as the first fruits. You'll notice I translated that a little bit differently than maybe your, your translation has it. Some translations, maybe most say, uh, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, uh, which is fine, but it might make it sound as though we only have a portion of the Spirit. Only the, we only have the first fruits of the Spirit, and then we'll get the rest of the Spirit later. No, if you're a believer, you have all of the Holy Spirit in you, and He, that indwelling Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Is the first fruits of what awaits you in the next world. So you have all of the Spirit, and He is the first fruits of what awaits you in the life to come. In the Old Testament, the first fruits was that initial crop at the beginning of harvest, right, in the spring. But it was was also an indication that the the full crop, the, the full harvest, would follow in due time. Perhaps in the fall. What do you think Paul? What do you think Paul had in mind when he used this metaphor? Why does he choose the metaphor of first fruits to talk about the indwelling Spirit? Why is that appropriate? Well, maybe this is slightly speculative, but it seems very likely that he was thinking about the Old Covenant feast of weeks, one of the main. Feast in the Old Testament, which was celebrated in the spring, when farmers would gather in the first fruits from the fields, that first wave of crops. The other name for this feast, of course, is Pentecost. And perhaps when Paul wrote Romans 8:23, he was thinking about how the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. While, while the Jews were celebrating the first fruits. Of the harvest. At any rate, what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit is the first fruits of our salvation, the first fruits of our redemption, the down payment, and that's the metaphor he uses elsewhere. In other places, Paul chooses a, a different metaphor to say the same thing. Instead of using the, the image of agriculture, as he does it here in Romans eight twenty three, in in 2 Corinthians in a couple places, and in Ephesians he uses a commercial metaphor describing the gift of the Spirit as God's pledge or deposit, um, first installment, down payment, which guaranteed the future completion of of the purchase. And maybe the best translation of those verses in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians is guarantee. The Spirit is a guarantee. And the idea behind both of these metaphors is that the presence of the Spirit in you guarantees the future completion of what God has already begun in you? What he has begun, he will complete. The, the down payment guarantees the final purchase. The first fruits guarantees the full harvest. That's not always the case in farming, but it is true with God and his promise. The first fruits guarantees the full harvest. Harvest. So, although you have not yet received your final adoption, your final redemption, you've already received the Spirit as both a foretaste and a promise of those future blessings. The indwelling Spirit, who's only the first fruits, is a constant reminder also of the incompleteness of our salvation, that we are half. Saved, a constant reminder that you daily participate with creation in futility, in pain, in decay, and in bondage to corruption. You don't have to turn there, but I want you can jot it down. Maybe I want you to listen to how Paul talks about our inward groaning and how it relates to the down payment of the spirit. In one of those verses, I was. I was alluding to in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to what he says. We groan in this tent. The tent is our body, our decaying body. We groan in this tent desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, our resurrection body most likely, what he's talking about there. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent Burdened as we are because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a down payment, a down payment of all those things he was just talking about. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-5. But it's not only our frail, mortal... Bodies that cause us to groan. It's also our sinful nature, our flesh, which hinders us from behaving as we ought to behave. It, it hinders us from doing what we, if you're a child of God, if you've been born again, what, what you want to do. And instead, it urges you to do what you don't want to do. We saw that in Romans 7. And if it were not for the indwelling spirit, The indwelling flesh would prevent us altogether from doing anything that pleases God, from trusting God and obeying God. And so because of this reality, we long, we groan for our flesh to be destroyed, our sinful nature to be destroyed as it will be one day. And we long, we groan for our body to be transformed and made new. Our groaning expresses both present pain and future longing, longing for the future. Second, we're groaning for resurrection, which is what I already hinted at this point by reading that passage from 2 Corinthians 5. But the end of verse 23 says in Romans 8, verse 23, Waiting expectantly for our adoption, the redemption Of our bodies. And so the second image Paul uses to help us long eagerly for our future glory is adoption. It's an image he's already used. Uh, And this is the same word, in fact, exactly that Paul used up in verse 15, where he said, There, we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Remember that verse? Well, so this creates a little bit of, a, of of tension in verse fifteen he treats our adoption as an event that has taken place in the past, and now he says our adoption is something that's in the future before he said it was it was the it was it referred to being transferred from the family of Satan to the family of God that was the the past but here in verse twenty three it's it's And so how can it be both? How can our adoption be both past and future? And the answer, of course, is that Paul is just using the word, this metaphor, this image, in two different but related ways. Very related. Closely related. We've we've already been adopted by God, and the indwelling spirit assures us of this reality, that we're his children, truly his children. And yet at the same time, what Paul's getting at here is that there's an even deeper and richer father-child relationship waiting for us on that day when we are revealed, Paul says, as God's sons at the end of the age and for all eternity. And if you have your handout, look up. Real quick at verse 19, where Paul says, Therefore, the eager expectation of creation waits expectantly for that revelation, the revelation of the sons of God. That's another reference to our resurrection. When God reveals that we are his sons to all of creation. Well, that's the day of our adoption, the, the confirmation of our adoption. And so just as the groaning creation waits expectantly for us, God's sons, to be revealed in all our glory, so also we, the groaning sons of God, wait expectantly for our adoption, which is our bodily redemption. And when we're finally revealed as God's children, Paul says down in verse 29, that we'll be conformed fully to the likeness of God. Of his son. I mean, he's talking about there how our our life, our trials conform us to the image of God's son, but on that day we'll be fully conformed. If you're a Christian, you've already been redeemed in spirit, but not in body. When you reach a certain age, you experience that truth. Your spirit is alive. But one day, God's Spirit will give life to your body. Philippians 3.21 says that your body will be transformed by Christ. Christ himself will transform your body to be just like his glorious body, Paul says. On that day, our bondage to decay, our bondage to corruption, our enslavement, will be replaced with glorious freedom, as Paul said in verse 21. The first sentence of verse 24 says, for, that it refers to this as our hope, and it says, for in this hope we were saved. We were saved in this hope that, we've, that I've just been talking about. We were saved in the past, but our hope lies in the future. And so if someone were to ask you, Uh, Is your salvation past, present, or future? What would you tell them? If you're a believer, you'd tell them that your salvation in Christ is all three. It's past, present, and future. In the past, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. And in the past, also in the past, The Spirit gave you the new birth, causing you to turn from your sins and embrace Christ by faith. You have been redeemed. You have been saved in the past. In the present, the Holy Spirit continues to work in your life. You continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God's, specifically His Spirit, who is working in you to accomplish this, conforming you, bringing you into conformity to God's Word and conforming you into the likeness of Jesus, the Word made flesh. You are being redeemed in the present. And in the future, you will be raised from the dead and given a new body, as well as a perfected, sinless spirit. On that day, the work that God began in in you, in this life, a work that goes all the way back to the cross... And we could even take it all the way back in, in, in another sense to God's decree before He created anything. That work will be completed in you in the future. You will be redeemed in the future at the restoration of all things. It's no wonder then that you and I groan in our body, in our bodies. Your body is the seat of all your weaknesses. It's the seat of your physical weaknesses, and it's the seat of your spiritual weaknesses. That's why Paul often refers to you know, our body as, as the seat of, of sin, the seat of our flesh, the home. It's not that our bodies are wicked. It's not that the physical world is, is evil in itself. But it is the seat of the flesh, and, and why it's referred to even as the flesh. It's the home of your sinful nature. And so no wonder we groan. We, but, but, but we groan in the hope that our decaying sinful bodies will one day be changed into bodies that are strong, sinless, beautiful, glorious, unable to die, on that day and forever will be more resplendent than we can even imagine. But we wake up every morning knowing that it's not yet true. We wake up every morning knowing that we're not today what will one day be. All of our best days lie ahead of this one. And we long for the day When all of our painful days, our groaning days, will be behind us, every single one of them. We look forward to the day, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, memorably put it, in Mere Christianity, the day when God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, Immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long. And in parts, very painful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. And that brings us to the third point. We're groaning hopefully. We don't groan despairingly. We, we groan hoping for something That we can't see which is to say we groan by faith faith is being assured of things hoped for things that we cannot see for in this hope we were saved paul says in verse 24 but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees verse 25 but if we hope for what we do not see we wait expectantly for it with patience Hope is a, is a great but misunderstood word of the Christian vocabulary. It occurs in some important passages, uh, some, some well-known phrases in Paul's letters. Our blessed hope, Titus 2.13. The hope of glory, Colossians 1.27, Romans 5.2. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote about hope. Uh, he spent a few verses on it back in chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Here's this language of rejoicing, counting it a privilege and honor To suffer with Christ, to groan. Not just to suffer, but to groan. We also rejoice in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions produce steadfast endurance. That's the same word, patience, uh, at the end of, uh, in verse 25 of Romans 8. That afflictions produce patience, or steadfast endurance. And steadfast endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see here, he doesn't use the word of language of guarantee or first fruits, but it's the Spirit who's poured love into our hearts who is testifying to this and guaranteeing that this hope is certain, that it will not put us to shame. Christian hope is greatly misunderstood if we mistake it for mere wishful thinking. That's how the word is is used often in everyday language, right? In everyday speech, we say things like, I I hope to get that job. You know, I hope I don't get sick. Uh, Something like that. But what's striking about Christian hope is that it's a... Certain hope. And not mere wishful thinking. It's a sure hope about the world to come. A hope that lies fully beyond this timeline. This world. But the most noteworthy thing about our Christian hope is, as I just hinted at, it's otherworldly. It's focused on heaven on on the world to come, even the new heaven, the new earth, rather than this world it 's been said that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good and maybe you 've heard that before uh, i don 't i i 'm still not convinced that such a thing is even possible i 've Certainly, never known of anyone who was so heavenly minded that he was of no earthly good. Uh, if, if maybe another description, another critique would fit, but not this, not that language. Um, I've known a lot of people, including your pastor, who daily risk becoming so earthly-minded, that we are of no heavenly good. Hope in the world to come is the mark of the true believer. And listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. Hope is the measure of true Christianity, which is through and through otherworldly. False Christianity always looks chiefly at this world, Popular Christianity is entirely this worldly and is not interested in the other world. But true Christianity has its eye mainly on the world which is to come. It is not primarily concerned even with deliverance from hell and punishment and all the things that trouble us and weary us. That really belongs to the past. True Christianity sets its affection on things which are above, not on things which are on the earth. True Christianity is that which says, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And the paradox, as another commentator pointed out, the paradox is that Only heavenly-minded people will ever be able to make any real and lasting difference in this world. And now we come to the final point, the surprise point. If I were to redo the outline, I would put a point D there at the bottom. And it would be that we're groaning patiently. We're groaning with steadfast endurance. Paul says at the end of verse 25 that our waiting is characterized not only by expectancy, but also by patience. We wait patiently for the fulfillment of our hope. Another suitable, as I've already indicated, another suitable, and I would say even better, I'm actually going to change my translation at the end of verse 25 would be we wait expectantly for it through steadfast endurance we we persevere because we're confident that the first fruits will be followed by the full harvest that bondage will be followed by liberation freedom that corruption will be followed by incorruption That weakness will be followed by strength. That mortality will be followed by immortality. And that the labor pains will be followed by the new world. The birth of a new heaven and earth. The birth of new bodies. This section of Romans 8 unpacks what it means to live In between times, as some have put it. Between the two ages, as it's sometimes called. Between the already and the not yet, to use another common phrase. Between present suffering and future glory. In this tension, in this tension that will last all the way to the day Jesus returns. In this tension, the posture of the godly Christian posture of of the godly is one of waiting. One of steadfast endurance to the end. Waiting with keen expectation. Waiting with steadfast endurance in our trials. I'm going to close with one more John Stott quote. Uh, This passage and these kind of topics are Stott's wheelhouse. And he says this. We are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. Yet it's hard to keep this balance. Some Christians overemphasize the call to patience. They lack enthusiasm and lapse into lethargy, apathy, and pessimism. They've forgotten God's promises, and they're guilty of unbelief. Others grow impatient of waiting. They're so carried away with enthusiasm that they almost try to force God's hand. They're determined to experience now what is not available yet. They're understandably anxious to emerge out of the painful present of suffering and groaning. Yet such impatience is a form of it is to rebel against the God of history who has indeed acted conclusively for our salvation and who will most assuredly complete, when Christ comes, what he has begun, but who refuses to be hustled into changing his planned timetable just because we do not enjoy having to go on waiting and groaning. God give us a patient eagerness And an eager patience as we wait for his promise to be fulfilled. Let's pray and ask for God to work this in us. Oh God, do give us expectancy and steadfast endurance. And fill our hearts and our minds with the hope of the resurrection. We pray this. In the name of Christ and for his sake, amen.